Let's open our Bibles back into 1 Kings, chapter 17. We, we took that uh, trip with Jonah last week. Off to Nineveh. We're back in the land of Israel. And we're back in chronological order. Elijah, whose name means the Lord is God. And this is really the theme of the next portion of Scripture. As idolatry has swept into Israel, into the divided kingdom, the Lord will establish Himself as the true God. Remember how idolatry came into Israel. Uh, Solomon brought it in through the marriage to many foreign wives. His intent, as we read through Proverbs and his invocation when he builds the temple, is to worship and honor the true God and to honor His Word. And yet he had an idol in his heart. He loved the love of women. So much so that he ends up marrying 700 wives and 300 concubines. So a thousand women in his life. Yeah, happy Valentine's Day, right? So a lot of, a lot of flowers. And yet it's really pragmatism or just being practical to keep those wives happy. And of course, many of those wives were daughters of foreign leaders. To keep the foreign leaders happy, he builds temples, small temples, nothing compared to the great temple, temple in Jerusalem, uh, places of worship for these, this idol worship. Horrible mistake, terrible. Blinded by his listening to the idol of his heart. Ah, what's it going to hurt? to build a small temple here or there. We all know who the true God is, and most of our national resources are being used to worship the true God. We've been seeing in the Scriptures how dangerous a divided heart is. You can't worship God and the world simultaneously. Something has to give. A kingdom divided cannot stand. And as a punishment for his idolatry, God says, after you go, Solomon, I'm going to divide the kingdom. It's a picture of that divided heart on a national scale. And for us today, this great picture and reminder of the consequences of worshiping God with a divided heart, it doesn't work. When the kingdom was divided, the first two kings were sons of Solomon, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. It gets confusing. Why would anyone name their sons such similar sounding names? You know, like Aaron and Adam. Like, who would, who would do that and confuse people? And to make matters worth, worse, Jeroboam is the king of, Jew, of, of Israel in the north, not Judah in the south. 
Rehoboam's in the south, Jeroboam's in the north. And Jeroboam becomes concerned that the people in the north will go south to worship at the temple. Listen to that. See where pragmatism takes over. Hey, people are going to go down and worship the true God. That's a problem. Because we're going to lose those people. It's like you see some churches today that fall into doctrinal error and they're not feeding their people on the Word of God and and people start leaving and they go, Hey, those people are leaving to go get fed on the Word of God. We'll start feeding them the Word of God and they'll stay. But no, they put together flashy programs and, and, and whatnot to try to get people to stay. Instead of being concerned that these people are loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, we get distracted by other things. The idol has no power. That's another theme that's going to run through the next few chapters. The idols have no power. They're not real. They're not gods. The power comes from the belief of the people who conjure up the idols. If you have an idol in your life, its power comes from your own wicked heart, my own wicked heart. I tell the idol what I want, and the idol tells me, you can have that. How convenient. The idol's not alive, the idol can't think, the idol doesn't speak. I empower it. And then I obey the God that I've made in my own image. And so for Jeroboam, he wanted to keep the people in the north and keep power in the north. So he asks his advisors what I should do. And they say, make two golden calves and put one in this city and one in this city. And that way people can go worship there. They were smart enough to realize we can't make another Ark of the Covenant, so don't bother trying. But really, a golden calf? That's absurd. I don't care how biblically illiterate the people of Israel came, certainly they would know, hey, wasn't there that story about the people, the time of Moses and the golden calf? How did that work out for them? I'm certain that the places of worship looked like the temple in Jerusalem, had a lot of the trappings of worship, priests, incense, sacrifice, washing, probably a lot of Bible verses too. Only one big difference, the true God was replaced with a false god. I want you to be on guard this morning as we hear this story. Don't be tempted to think, oh, this is ancient people, this is unsophisticated people, primitive people. It's not like I'm going to go to some temple and start worshiping a golden calf. So, the sermon doesn't apply to me. Now I'll go home and sit in front of my TV for hours on end and think about how I could make more money and so on and so on. 
the outward manifestation of idolatry may look different from culture to culture, but the inward motives of the heart have never really changed through history. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, these are the roots of sin. In the northern kingdom, we get a series of wicked kings. None of them None of them do what's right in the sight of the Lord. So Jeroboam starts with the idolatry, makes the two golden calves. Then we get Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Tibni, and Omri. Those seven kings cover 57 years of the northern kingdom's history. None of them had a lot of staying power. Fifty-seven years, seven kings, from 931 to 874. And then Omri brings in this Baal worship as the, the only god that's going to be allowed to be worshipped in the northern kingdom. So he kind of pushes out the other idols and highlights the worship of Baal. His son Ahab comes along and kind of doubles down. And we'll read about that in a second. But I want to tell you about the southern kingdom. In the south, the first king after Solomon, Rehoboam, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but it was kind of a mixed bag. Kind of a mixed bag. Some good worship, some bad. And then Abijah comes. But then Asa. Asa, the Bible says, did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he reigns for 40 one years. So while the northern kingdom is cycling through wicked, ineffective kings, King Asa reigns for 41 years. And you have quite a contrast in Israel between the worship of the true God in the south and worship of idols in the north. We're going to focus in on King Ahab today because that's where the story of Elijah the prophet comes. Ahab was king in the, uh, about the last two years of Asa's reign, and then for the rest of Ahab's reign, the king in the south is Jehoshaphat, which really doesn't affect our story at all, but I just wanted to say Jehoshaphat. <laughs> but that is a cool name. So where are we now? We're right around 874 B.C., and we'll back up a little to 1 Kings 16.29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So he made that region of Samaria his headquarters. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's quite a title. Hey, these other seven kings were wicked. But this guy did more wickedness than either any of the seven kings before him or maybe the Hebrew is trying to say more than the other seven combined 
Hard to tell. It came about, and I love this, a little Old Testament sarcasm, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Bad enough that he brought idolatry in, in like Jeroboam, as if that were a small thing or a trivial thing. That he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So Ahab seeks out the king of the Sidonians, known for their Baal worship, and only Baal worship, marries his daughter. Her name becomes synonymous even today with a woman of such low character. A woman known to lure men away from what is good and what is right and what is holy. We'll even say today, stay away from that, Jezebel. Jezebel's father, Ethbaal, his name, get this, means Baal lives. Baal lives. So you see, we're setting up this showdown. God is setting up the showdown with the true and living God and these false gods who aren't really alive. And yet the follower of these false gods that aren't really alive name their king Baal lives. And it says he went to serve Baal and worshipped him. In other words, Ahab is not worshipping many gods. He's not worshipping the true God of Israel and some idolatry on the side. He is totally committed to Baal and totally committed to making the northern kingdom Baal worshippers. Why? We said that these false gods are conjured up in the heart. What is going on in the hearts of the people? It was believed that Baal was in control of the weather. The climate of Israel is much like Southern California. Very similar. You get some rain near the end of the year that they would call the former rains, and then a little rain in the beginning of the new year they call the latter rains, and or maybe it's vice versa. And then you don't get much after that. So if you don't get your rain, no crops, no crops, no life, no prosperity, no business. The entire engine of the economy comes to a screeching halt. So for some, Baal worship was just survival. For others, it was for economics. And for King Ahab, it was the power and the economics of the prosperity that comes through their agricultural economy, their agrarian economy, and keeping your people happy. Ahab's not going to die because of a drought. What little food there is, the king will, will take for himself. His fear is losing his power. 
God would often bring drought on his people as a judgment for their wickedness and idolatry. A very natural, national, visible way of God bringing his judgment on people. So for people to think that it wasn't the true God bringing the drought and a false God, in essence, they didn't want to hear that they were under God's judgment. They didn't want to hear that they were wicked and needed to repent. And so easier to conjure up a false God in your mind and then worship that false God. Oh, and by the way, the way this false God wanted to be worshipped was through such detestable acts as temple prostitution. How convenient. I'm going to worship my God. See, Baal was thought also to be a fertility god. He brings the rain. The the rain fertilizes the ground. A lot of these pagan religions bring detestable sexual practices into their worship. So, Elijah pops onto the scene, and, like, we get no backstory. 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah, well, who's Elijah? Where did he come from? What do we know about him? We know he's a Tishbite. And the Tishbites were the settlers of Gilead. That's all we know about him. And yet, for someone we don't know a whole lot about, the Old Testament and New Testament again and again speak to the power of Elijah. As a prophet, he has no equal until John the Baptist comes. He goes to prophesy to Ahab, as the Lord... The God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Elijah is proclaiming a drought because the Lord controls the rain, not Baal. I'm turning off the spigots, God says. And I'll let you know when I'm going to turn them on. That's, That's a true God. A true God has the power and the voice to say, I'm turning it off and I will turn it back on later and I'll let you know exactly when I'm going to turn it back on. And then he tells Elijah, go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So kind of leave Israel for a while, lay low, let the drought take its effect until the people have been so affected by the drought that they're willing now to listen. Hey, this Baal thing isn't working out. Sometimes God has to break us down, right, before we'll listen. Let us... Sleep in the bed we've made. Let us eat the meal we've spread out in front of us. Get a taste of our own medicine. Boy, there's a lot of cliches for that. And reap what we sow. 
While he's out east, the Lord says to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. How interesting. Of all people to provide for Elijah, a widow who would have very little herself. I love how in the Bible we'll go from cosmic view, national view, and then sometimes all the way down to an individual to remind us that God isn't just the God of the cosmos and the God of nations, but He's a God who cares for individuals. And wouldn't a drought affect a widow more drastically than anyone else? And this is a reminder that God is tender-hearted and He knows about each individual on the earth. And he sends Elijah to this widow. And I'll paraphrase the story. The widow's got enough meal and oil left to make two cakes. One for her, one for her son. And then she says, we're going to eat our cakes, and then we're going to die. There's no food. There's no way to get any more food. This is it. We're going to have one last meal and then die. And Elijah says make the cake for me instead. Which, if he didn't know what God was going to do for the widow next, would be extremely cold-hearted. Well, you guys are going to die anyways. You might as well make me the cake. Right? But that's not the intent here. The intent is for God, again, to display He is the true God. And so she obediently, with her little mustard seed, size faith makes this prophet the cake. And lo and behold, the jar of grain isn't empty. And the oil isn't empty. And she continues to make cakes for days and the jar never empty. The Lord provides, the true God provides, Baal can't do this. Where have we seen this before? Whether it's with the rain or with, its, uh, with providing food, where have we seen God control the rain in the Old Testament? Uh, Noah? <laughs> what about the New Testament? Jesus comes, God in human flesh, and calms the storm. The true God has control over the weather. Where have we seen in the Old Testament God feeding people out of nothing? Manna in the wilderness? What about the New Testament? Jesus feeding the 5,000 and later the 4,000? God's the God who provides food. He makes food. He can take a little bit of food and make it stretch. Remember growing up as a boy, boy, my mom could make some food stretch. I didn't know that's what was going on. But that must have been the lean years. You know, the Jimmy Carter years. She'd buy a turkey, and then it would be turkey sandwiches, and then turkey soup, 
mean, that carcass had nothing left on it. But this isn't that. This is supernaturally making food out of nothing. God demonstrating His power. Something strange happens, though, and, and sad. Almost cruel again, if we didn't know the rest of the story. The boy gets sick and dies. Why would God go out of His way to supernaturally feed a boy who was about to starve anyways, only to have the boy die? And Elijah pleads for the life of the boy, and God raises this boy from the dead. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Notice she didn't say this after the miracle with the food that had been going on day after day after day. And the people in the desert didn't praise God for their manna. And the people who were fed by Jesus returned the next day looking for more food, but not willing to praise Him as God. Beloved, some people think that what will bring great revival in our land is a series of miracles. But we just need one miracle to proclaim to people, a resurrected Savior. Only one went to the other side of the grave and came back to tell us the way to eternal life. Jesus raised a boy from the dead, a girl from the dead, a friend from the dead, and himself from the dead. And so some people say, well, we, we need to see more resurrections today. And when I see a sinner humbled and praise God and love God and love others, I say, someone has been raised from the dead. Because I, I counsel all the time and I can't make anyone do the right thing. I can't. Well, maybe for a little while I could use some kind of manipulation to get him to do the right thing. But I can't change a heart. When I witness to people, I, I can't change a heart. I can tell them about my resurrected Savior and what an amazing change it's made in my life. That's a testimony. But only the gospel and the power of God can raise a life up from the dead. This is what the world needs. Even Jesus said in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, they have the Old 
They have the Old Testament and the law. They have Moses and the prophets. If they're not going to listen to the Word of God, what makes you think you coming back from the dead will change their mind? I'm convinced that the nature of unbelief is such that if someone was raised from the dead, they would say, well, what did the doctors do? Or maybe he wasn't really dead. There's other friends in evangelicalism. We call them friends. We probably don't fellowship with them real directly, but we love them. We believe they know God and are saved, but they're all caught up in signs and wonders. We need signs and wonders. We need to do things today just like they did them in the Bible, and that's going to change everything. And not to be cheeky, but are you saying you should stretch yourself out on a dead child three times? These stories are not prescriptive. They're pointing us to a greater reality. And again, not to be cheeky, but people have done this. Laid themselves out on a sick child, someone dying of cancer. I I find that obscene. We, we pray, and the Lord who gives life answers according to His good will. Because the thing about this boy, and we've talked about this before, is he's going to die again. And his mother is going to die. The question is, what happens after they die? That's the question for you this morning. Can your false god do anything for you after you die? Only one God, the true God, has the power to give you new life. It's the God who gave you your original life. Once you're dead, you can't speak for your false God anymore. You better find a God who's real and settle it in your heart today. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and it's true. With this as the backdrop, Elijah is now ready to go battle the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 18.20 This is the story most people are familiar with. This is the one taught in Sunday school. It's dramatic. It would make for really good television. Big screen probably would be better. High death. It's it's an exciting story. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If you're an underliner, underline that. How long? Will you sit on the fence? How long will you follow God and 
the world. How long will you read God's word but trust in your own word? How long? A kingdom divided cannot stand. No one can serve two masters. These are Jesus' words in the New Testament. If the Lord, Yahweh, is God, follow Him. But if Baal, follow Him. But don't try to follow both. But the people did not answer Him a word. They don't know who to follow. What if I follow one and the other one has something better for me? They want to hedge their bets. The study we're starting tonight at the Young Married's Bible Study is a book on discerning the will of God and making decisions. It's called Just Do Something. And it's chronicling how this culture, the millennials, are having trouble making decisions and launching in life. We told them they could have the world, they could have everything, and they listened. Now they're afraid to make a choice because you know when you make a choice, that excludes all the other ones. So, no, you can't have it all. In Christ, you can have it all. And God defines what the all is. Everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need for eternity. Let God determine what the all is, and the choice becomes easy. Follow God. He has the power to make it so. But the people did not answer him a word. And so, Elijah says, you take your prophets, and they hundreds of prophets of Baal. And don't think about these prophets, again, as some unsophisticated, primitive culture, these people needed jobs, they needed money, they needed to work. Who do you think paid them? These were government prophets. They prophesied on the government's dime, which means they had to ask Ahab, what should we prophesy today? So... They set up two altars, one for the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them, one for Elijah, the one true prophet of the true God. Elijah's name meaning God is Lord, or the Lord is God. And they set up the sacrifice, and he lets the prophets of Baal have first crack, and they're supposed to call down fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal try everything they know how, all their absurdity, all their superstition, moaning, groaning, weeping and wailing. Nothing happens. And Elijah points out their absurdity because idolatry always leads to absurdity. There's, no, there's nothing there. He says, maybe Baal's hard of hearing. You know, he's been around a long time as a god. Maybe you need to yell louder. And they begin to cut themselves, and they think that will impress Baal and and, and bleed themselves out. And it must have been a horrible, gruesome, gory scene. And tens of thousands of people from Israel are watching this happen on Mount Carmel. 
And Elijah ups the ante with the mocking. And we're pretty sure in the Hebrew he says, maybe Baal's relieving himself. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Someone said the emperor's wearing no clothes. Somebody ripped back the curtain like in the Wizard of Oz. There's nothing back there. It's just a man pulling the levers. Our society has turned its back on God and has turned to idols, and absurdity and wickedness has followed. And you're, you're like, again, well, I don't, I don't see the parallel. Where, where's the absurdity? I see the immorality, but where's the absurdity? Where You keep saying chasing after idols always leads to absurdity. Paul says this in Romans 1. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and then it all falls apart after that. Becoming, professing to be wise, they became fools and their hearts were darkened. What kind of absurdity and, and wickedness has followed in our culture? How about the lies of transgenderism and sexual orientation? I can't choose who I have sex with but I can choose my gender. Now, we look at the ancient culture and Baal worship and say, these people are absurd, but if they heard what I just said, the voices from the past would say, say what? (laughs) What? Oh, well, we're speaking from the future Trust us, just wait as you get more sophisticated and intelligent, you'll arrive at this truth. Young people and their parents sending them to Ivy League schools, paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for an education, and in their very first class hearing their professors say, there's no absolute truth. So what are we going to learn then? Opinions. And they keep writing the check. And then they have a degree that's worthless. At least if they'd gone to the other side of campus to the engineering department, they might learn how to build a building or something. Our culture has redefined marriage and family again. All the cultures all over the world for thousands of years. What? It's not that they obeyed the truth, but at least they knew the truth. We look back there and say, how absurd, how disgusting. They they passed their children through the fires, sacrificed their children to appease their God. We don't do that today. We sacrifice our children on the altar of getting ahead in the working world. Or we pass them through the fire, so to speak, before they're even born. I was following the story over in, in, in Europe. You know I'm fascinated with what's going on over there. It's kind of a bellwether. What happens over there seems to happen over here. 30 years later. 
It's kind of like fashion in Tehachapi, right? <laughs> Whatever they're wearing in L.A., like five years later, it'll make its way up here. Which makes it easy to be fashionable on the cheap. <laughs> Hit the thrift stores. On New Year's Eve in Copenhagen, I don't know if you followed the story and, and some other places, people go out in the streets, they party on New Year's Eve. It's a disgusting, immoral scene anyways. But now with all of these immigrants, there was huge numbers of sexual assaults going on in the streets during the New Year's Eve celebration. The police and the press covered it up because they were afraid that there would be a backlash against Muslim mi minorities. And so the cover-up was exposed. And I figured, okay, now the culture's going to say, you've gone too far. We're throwing out our false idols. And yet leaders in the feminist movement got up and publicly said the police and the press did the right thing by covering it up for the sake of multiculturalism. What ends up happening then with Elijah? He digs a, a trench around his sacrifice, fills it with water, and dumps water all over his sacrifice, so saturating the, his sacrifice with water that there's no way human no humanly possible way to burn up the sacrifice. Calls on the name of the Lord, fire comes down from heaven and completely consumes the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. Amen. The Lord, He is God. They repeated, Amen. And remember, that's Elijah's name. That's what his name means. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let... One of them escaped, so they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And then God sends Elijah to proclaim the end of the drought, and he goes to Ahab, and he says, God's going to turn the water back on now. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. God wins, God wins, God wins, God wins. And now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me. She's still worshiping false gods. And even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And get this, and he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there and he himself went another day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. How do you go from such a huge victory to complete despair? How do you defeat... 400 plus prophets of Baal and then run away from a woman. 
Sorry, ladies. How does this happen? After all these great miracles and all these great victories, Elijah runs with his tail between his legs from a pagan woman. On a side note here, I never want to allegorize the text. So I'm, I'm being careful here, but I think we can say that we've all experienced some great spiritual high. We're on top of the world. We feel like we could evangelize the world. We could do no wrong in our ministry. We went to some conference. We went to camp. We went to something where it was so great, we just figured those feelings would continue on. And it always seems like you come down from the mountain and... Satan attacks, or real life doesn't measure up to the mountaintop experience, and you feel puny. That's the best word I could come up with, puny. You just feel spiritually puny. And that ought to tell us something. As wonderful as these mountaintop experiences are, you can't live from one mountaintop to the next, to the next, to the next. You have to learn how to live the Christian life faithfully, day after day, in the humdrum of the details of life. So what does God do for Elijah? It's so practical, it gives me encouragement. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. Hey, sleep. Sleep is good. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise and eat. You need to eat. You need to sleep. You need to eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Get some water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Oh, I'm going for a walk? Eat, drink. Have a little food, a little water, a little nap, a little exercise. You're a human being. Your body is finite. But the Lord of your soul is infinite. Young ladies will often call my wife in the midst of crisis, especially new moms, exhausted, worn out, weary, panic-filled, anxiety. I'm going to ruin them. I'm the worst mom ever. They're going to turn out horribly. It's going to be all my fault. I don't know what to do. It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my mother's. Jennifer has learned over the years to ask, when's the last time you ate? When's the last time you slept? When's the last time you exercised? Take a nap. Have a healthy snack. No coffee and chocolate. That'll just make it worse. Go for a walk. Call me back. And we'll see what's left to deal with. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. This the Hatchapi? <laughs> We've got wind and earthquakes and fires. And then the text gets hard to translate here because the word in Hebrew for voice is similar to the word for wind. So the King James says the still small voice, and that's become the translation of choice in our culture. We love, we love that translation. I love that translation. It's a good translation. And after the fire, a still small voice. The point is, God didn't come to reassure Elijah in the midst of some great miracle. He's been doing miracles all along. He stopped the rain. He started the rain. He fed the widow. He raised the boy from the dead. And he defeated the prophets of Baal on the mountain. But when Elijah needed encouragement, it wasn't in the signs and wonders. It was in the still, small voice of God. Be still and know that I am God. They're not real gods. I don't have to shout. They can't even talk. My people who know me don't need miraculous signs and wonders. My sheep hear my voice. You can shout at the top of your lungs and do signs and wonders all day long, and if you're not in the sheepfold, it won't matter. But for those of us who've been given the gift of faith, who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we know His voice. Sometimes when I'm having a bad week, I'm like, if I could just make it to Sunday. If I could just make it to Sunday. But I have God's Word through the week, but something about gathering with God's people and hearing His Word together, it encourages me, and gets me ready for another week. When I miss a Sunday which as a pastor is rare now, but in the past, if my family had to miss a Sunday, it was so hard to get through the week. And by Tuesday, we were nipping at each other. Stop looking for flashy miracles. If you're feeling down today, if you're feeling spiritually puny, if you're not sure you can go on in your ministry, if you feel like your marriage is hanging on by a thread... You feel like giving up. Don't. Don't give up. Take a nap. Have a, have a meal. Drink some water. Go for a walk. And go sit down with the Word of God. And things will look completely different. Same problems... It'll just look different. Not so big anymore. God's really big. He can handle it. God goes on to give Elijah instructions. He predicts the eradication of Baal worship in the land. He tells them, go appoint a king here, here, and go appoint another prophet, Elisha, S-H, Elisha. And then he says this, oh, by the way, I'm paraphrasing, you said you were all alone. I have 7,000 other leaders who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000. 
You're not alone. That's what Satan wants you to think. That's it. I'm the only one who cares about God anymore. I'm the only one trying. You look at world events. The church is collapsing. It's crumbling. No, it's not. No, it's not. God is still God. He wins. He's winning. He's saving souls. He's planting churches. He's raising up leaders. His word is still here. They're not adding chapters to this book and they're not taking them away. God speaks. Hebrews 1.1 God, after, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has a spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. The miracle of creation is overshadowed by the miracle of God's Word. I know we're surrounded with billions of books on this planet, and with our cell phones we're surrounded by billions upon billions of pieces of data and text. Don't take for granted the Word of God. It's a miracle that we can understand language and speech. It is how God chose in His wisdom to communicate with us. Just because everybody learns to talk doesn't mean it's not a miracle. We still really don't know scientifically how it happens. How you're hearing sounds come out of my mouth and translating them into words that, that have meaning. Stop looking for the big, miraculous sign. You have it right here, the still, small voice of God, which is ironic. It, it, it's not small. They're using that word in an ironic sense. It's a big voice. It's the only God who speaks because it's the only God who's real and is alive. Hebrews 12, 18, For God spoke in frightening, miraculous ways in the past. For you have not come to a mountain that could be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. He's talking about the old covenant given to Israel on Mount Sinai with the fire and the earthquake and the rumbling and the grumbling and the the clouds and the lightning. It was terrifying, the Word of God. But, beloved, we're children of a new covenant, a better covenant. Not that God wasn't a God of grace and mercy and love in the Old Testament. He was. That's how He announced His name to Moses. But that grace, mercy, and love is fully revealed now in the New Covenant in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in the pages of the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We have God in human flesh and He spoke to us. He's the Word made flesh and He speaks the words of eternal life. Are you feeling down, spiritually puny? Are you sitting on the fence? This is your answer right here. The gospel, the good news, the words of eternal life. Stop looking around for miracles. You have one right here. Let's pray. (laughs) That's a good reminder to wrap up. Thank you, baby. (laughs) Father God, we're reminded as we hear the voice of this babe that you speak. And you've made us able to hear and to know and to think and to reason. Help us, Lord, by your power and spirit to choose to follow you and not the bales in our life. May we choose the true God, listen to his word, obey it and trust it. For those who need encouragement this morning, Lord, I pray your word will not return void and bring encouragement. Nothing more encouraging than knowing in the midst of all the turmoil, there is a God, unmovable and unshaken, who loves us with a love so final and complete that He can announce nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those sitting on the fence this morning, I pray they'll choose this day whom they'll follow. Like Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, I know this time of year people get weary. I pray people will not quit their ministries, not quit in doing good, not quit on their marriages, not quit on the work you've laid out before them, not quit in shepherding their children, but that you would encourage them and strengthen them in your word and by your spirit to finish the good work that you created them to accomplish. Knowing that if they are faithful, you take care of all the rest. I pray you do this for your good and our glory, or our good and your glory, I should say. Amen.